Top Class, the OECD's education podcast. My name is Henry and I work here in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. Today we're going to be talking about social and emotional skills, what they are, how to measure them and what impact they have on a student's overall development. And we'll also be looking at emotional well-being and what schools should be doing to foster positive emotional well-being for their students. I'm very pleased to be joined by Milos Kankarash, an analyst here at the OECD, and Francesca Gottschalk, another analyst here at the OECD. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation. So, Milos, what are social-emotional skills and and why are they important? Uh, Social-emotional skills are abilities of people to regulate their thoughts, their behaviors, uh, their self-perceptions and to engage with others in a, let's say, productive and functional ways. Uh, Unlike uh, cognitive skills, Uh, such as uh, literacy, numeracy, they are not predominantly based on the information processing, but rather on the mental capacities to manage how one feels, how one sees oneself, uh, how one motivates and behaves and also works with with other people. On the other hand, like cognitive skills, uh, they are dependent on situational factors and they are also subject to change. So they, they develop continuously throughout the time, uh, lifetime. Uh, they are important skills and they are important because they really influence a number of important life outcomes and life events. For example, perseverance, responsibility, self-control, curiosity, they are found to affect positively school grades and educational outcomes and in the same time are found to influence positively development of cognitive skills themselves. Uh, on the other hand, emotional control, self-resistance, optimism are found to be uh, positively related with well-being and also physical and mental health. Uh, also, trust, empathy, cooperation uh, are critical for building good uh, supportive relationships with friends, with family, with colleagues at work. Uh, so, social-emotional skills have always, always been uh, important and their importance was always recognized. But in recent years, due to the uh, recent trends in uh, societies and in uh, technological advances, their importance really grew. Uh, so, for example, uh, growing automatization of jobs, globalization of economies and uh, increasing migration place additional value on the skills such as creativity, uh, tolerance, critical thinking, cooperation, teamwork. Uh, so, as a consequence, social-emotional skills received increasing attention from the policymakers and researchers in uh, recent years. Some of the skills you mentioned in, in that list are quite a, quite a long list there. I feel like some people may assume that those are based on personality and, and they can't really be taught or learned. Is that true? Are these skills in fact learnable? Yeah, there is a number of, I would say, misconceptions regarding the notion of uh, social-emotional skills and also different aspects of their development of cross-cultural status. Uh, One of these misconceptions is this notion of their having a fixed, non-malleable nature. Uh, This is basically not true. Just like cognitive skills, they are changeable and they are learnable and they actually do uh, change throughout a lifetime. They are are under influence of both 
biological and environmental factors, just like uh, cognitive skills. They are under the influence of formal and informal learning experiences. Uh, also, uh, they change uh, uh, after important life events, for example, getting married or getting a first job or getting a, a first child really changes social emotional skills of people. And most importantly, they are under the influence of or they are, are responsive to intervention programs aimed at developing these uh, skills. And I can tell you that, for example, uh, in some cases, intervention programs as short as two weeks can make a long-lasting changes into these skills uh, uh, and be more effective than corresponding programs aimed at, at development of cognitive skills. Social emotional skills may not be as clear-cut as, say, mathematics or reading or something like that. How would we possibly measure this kind of thing? Yeah, the, it, it, indeed, uh, it is a bit more difficult to measure uh, social-emotional skills compared to cognitive skills, but there is a long-lasting uh, tradition of measurement of uh, uh, social-emotional skills that goes almost a century. Um, there is a number of approaches or uh, assessment methods to measure these skills. The most important or the most uh, prominent is through the use of self-report questionnaires which are basically set of questions respondents are asked to answer. They relate to the particular skills or they relate to the typical behaviors that are uh, of relevance to particular skills. So, for example, if we want to measure responsibility of a person, we are asking questions about their typical punctuality, so whether they come on time for the meetings or the, for the school classes. If you want to measure self-control, we are asking about their impulsiveness or for example, whether they think before they say or before they answer the question, etc. So uh, the, the good thing about these uh, uh, instruments is that they are very fast and efficient to administer and they have a relatively good reliability and that, uh, uh, precision and uh, relatively high validity. That is, they do indeed measure those skills that we want them to measure. On the other hand, they have a number of important limitations, such as uh, response bias, people tendency to answer, uh, to agree with the answers, or uh, reference bias, where different group of people are judging the same situation in different ways, etc. Due to these uh, limitations, there is a number of other methodologies developed to assess these skills. One of probably second most popular one is uh, reports provided by important or knowledgeable others. In case of the assessment of social-emotional skills with school children, these are usually uh, reports provided by parents and teachers. In case when we are assessing adult skills, these are reports either by partners of people, for example, husband and wife, or by colleagues of a person. And these are always providing additional information uh, to that information provided by respondents themselves. So the best approach is to actually combine the self-reports with the reports provided by others. There is a number of other assessment approaches, for example, observation is sometimes used by observation by experts or lay persons where they uh, evaluate behavior of their assessed respondents and provide evaluation. Uh, these also have uh, their own drawbacks because the quality observation depends on the accuracy and objectivity of the provided reports and also they are a bit longer to implement and so uh, more expensive. 
Finally, there are biographical information and uh, performance uh, uh, tests where, for example, when we want to assess a person's creativity, we can evaluate their own creative products uh, and, and see, based on this uh, output, uh, estimate what is their level of, uh, of this particular skill. So, uh, all, all in all, there is a number of methods to assess these skills, so when, uh, which one will be used in a particular situation, a particular research project, depends on the objectives of the projects and various situational constraints. Obviously, there's a very scientific approach to that, and I think there's a risk that we can make these social-emotional skills seem really scientific rather than actual emotions and, and uh, attributes that people have. I think uh, that's a little bit cold, and maybe we really should be paying attention as well to the emotional well-being of students. I think we would be remiss if we ignored that. Francesca, can you tell us what factors influence a student's uh, emotional well-being and general well-being, and, uh, and what are the specifically 21st century threats to well-being and, and mental health that we should be aware of? So often uh, in this debate, we hear of the nature versus nurture debate. So in terms of nature, that's uh, something that we're born with. So we can look at uh, different genetic factors. Often there's a high rate of concordance in certain mental illness. So for example, in schizophrenia, some reports uh, report up to 60% concordance rates in twin studies. And things like anxiety, sometimes we see a 40 to 50% concordance rate. On the, the nurture side, we have a number of factors that can affect well-being, the big one being inequality. Often we see lower levels of life satisfaction that are reported in low SES, socioeconomic status, versus high SES students. Um, a big thing that we're looking at at the moment, especially in Europe and in OECD countries, is um, displacement. So we can look at adverse childhood experiences, uh, displacement being one of the biggest ones. It's the highest level on record at the moment. Um, often with displacement and with the refugee crisis, we see children having high exposure to trauma. Uh, so we can see that they've seen things like death of a loved one or they've feared for their own or significant others' lives and we also see a high degree of family separation. This can increase the risk of post-traumatic stress disorder and we see this especially in unaccompanied versus accompanied minors. Other factors um, that influence emotional well-being are relationships, that's a big thing. Um, we see, especially in terms of relationships, that having face-to-face -face contact and touch can convey a sense of security and closeness, and it helps us to convey understanding, caring, and love with other people. Some other causes of mental health problems that we're seeing at the moment are things like school stress, appearance pressure, and bullying is a big contributor to emotional well-being. In terms of the 21st century, we have a lot of hype at the moment about screen time and mental well-being. Um, we read uh, hype media headlines talking about screens are ruining a generation, um, it's affecting our attention, it's causing autism, and a lot of this is actually unfounded. So a lot of, these, um, a lot of this research and the data is correlational, so we actually can't infer causation. Uh, we can't see if screens are actually causing these things, or maybe somebody who has attention problems to begin with is choosing to engage more in screen time. And something really interesting that we talked about in a recent expert meeting that we held for the 21st Century Children Project is the notion of a Goldilocks effect. So there might actually be kind of a sweet spot at which point children engage with screens. So too little engagement might be detrimental to emotional well-being, as well as too much engagement. And it also depends on the kind of screens we're engaging with. So playing games might have a different effect than doing homework on a computer or going on Facebook. Um, and too much exposure might also be detrimental depending on when it happens. So if you're engaging more with a screen on the weekday or the weekend, 
there might actually be different effects in terms of well-being outcomes. One other thing that I'd like to mention, um, we're doing a bit of research on parenting styles at the moment, and we see some um, differences in social and emotional development depending on different parenting styles. So something that's, uh, that's bigger in, uh, in the media at the moment is the idea of fubbing which is where you actually, I know, Henry's laughing. Yeah, I was laughing, that's a weird word. <laughs> so, fubbing is, um, it's a combination of two words, snubbing and phone. So it's where you're essentially snubbing uh, yeah. somebody to Let use your sense. phone. So if, uh, if I'm sitting here and Henry's looking at his phone, you're, which I'm not, which he's not, <laughs> you would be fubbing me. So um, parents are increasingly doing this. They're maybe ignoring their children in lieu of looking at their iPad or their phone. And we actually see that this is related to an increase in externalizing behaviors such as aggression, delinquency, and hyperactivity. Um, as well as it's correlated with increasing internalizing behaviors, which are things such as depression and anxiety. So this is kind of interesting. I imagine emotional well-being is as hard to measure as social-emotional skills that Milos was talking about. Mm -hmm. How's it done? So it's, it's important to understand um, that we can't look at one indicator of emotional well-being. It's very multidimensional, so we need to look at a wide array of things. Um, so and often they fall along a spectrum. Uh, you're not emotionally well or emotionally unwell. There's a wide range of places on which you could be on this spectrum. Um, in the terms of mental illness, we have um, the DSM, which is a manual of how we can diagnose mental disorders. And the WHO has a similar tool, which is an international statistical classification of diseases and related health problems. So this provides us with a medical classification and we can see the prevalence of different mental health disorders uh, in the population. So for example, in children, we see some of the highest prevalence of drug abuse, anxiety, and depression. Um, uh, so for example, 10 to 20% of all children or adolescents suffer from some kind of diagnosable mental health problem. Um, other ways in which we can look at emotional well-being more holistically is to look at things like life satisfaction, which is measured by the health behavior in school-aged children, as well as in PISA. So in PISA 2015, they looked at things like uh, school-related, schoolwork-related anxiety, uh, life satisfaction. They looked at the sense of belonging at school um, and motivation for achievement. So it's interesting to see they used a 10-point scale for life satisfaction. And across the OECD, 15-year-old students reported on average a 7.3 on the life satisfaction scale. And this changed across countries. We saw some differences across countries. And something interesting is that it could be culturally influenced, and we might have different local interpretations of what constitutes a happy life. So what can teachers and schools do to improve the emotional well-being of their students? Um, so when we, we look at the PISA report, some of the findings supported that when students felt like their teachers were adapting their lessons to suit the needs and the knowledge level of the students in their class, as well as when they showed that they were available to provide individual help, um, students tended to report lower levels of anxiety, of schoolwork-related anxiety. Another big thing is having positive, supportive relationships. So negative relationships, a negative teacher-student relationship was associated with higher levels of anxiety. Um, so, and also, so basically if you report things like your teacher ridicules you in front of the classroom or they discipline you more harshly than other students, if that's your perception, potentially you could be reporting higher levels of anxiety. Another important thing that we talked about a lot in our expert meeting as well is the importance of play in terms of 
providing students with a creative and a physical output. So I think it's really important to have protected time during school for students to engage in play that's an unstructured time where they can do what they want, be with their friends, and engage in something that's not entirely structured. Uh, another interesting thing that we can look at is different intervention programs that we have for students. A lot of things like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based programs, um, and resilience programs are being studied at the moment. We can have selective programs that specifically target students who are at risk, or we can have universal programs that are implemented for a group of students and implemented equally across all students. So even students who might not be at risk, they're still engaging in these programs. Um, often they introduce things like mood management, life skills training, and social skills training. So a little bit of what Milos was talking about before with the social-emotional skills. They're teaching children how to relate to one another and how to do a little bit of metacognition to understand how they're feeling about their own feelings and how to control that and adjust depending on the situation. Something to maybe bridge the gap between what Milos was saying and what Francesca was saying. Milos, can you possibly talk about how the studies on social-emotional skills can be used to inform the way teachers and schools approach the emotional development of their students mm -hmm. from from now on? Will social emotional skills studies aid that in any yes. way? Yeah, definitely uh, it will and they will. And that is one of the primary goals actually of our study. So the studies, although we place a lot of importance on assessment of skills themselves, this is basically only the first step. The main goal for us in these studies is that uh, we find the factors which are providing or helping development of these skills or maybe uh, presenting hinders for the development and, and with a special importance or the, with a special focus on such factors in the classroom, in the school. So we are asking teachers about their ways of running classes, about their pedagogies that they use in the classes, about the general school climate, about the role of social emotional skills in curriculums at the school level and the, and the wider district level, and then relating or associating these with the uh, uh, measures of the social emotional skills individual students in order to see what works and what doesn't work. Uh, in terms of the school pedagogies, in, in terms of the pedagogies of the teachers, but also in terms of general school practices and, and programs. Uh, with the aim to inform, with the aim to inform policy and to provide targets for possible policy actions. Uh, I would also add information uh, which may be of interest to the, uh, to the listeners. Uh, Francesca was talking about assessment of uh, emotional well-being. We are really serious about providing a, a comprehensive and in-depth assessment of this area because we think that the social emotional skills are especially relevant for improving uh, general well-being of, of, of students and especially their emotional well-being uh, which is I think a topic which is often overlooked in the policy consideration where such a strong importance is placed on the grades and on achievement in academic subjects and themselves. Well, it looks like we've just about run out of time, but I want to thank Milos and Francesco for joining me. And thanks to everyone for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and share the podcast. And don't forget to follow the OECD Education Twitter account, which can be found at OECD Edu Skills, as well as our Education and Skills Today blog at OECDeducationToday.blogspot.com. Thanks again, and until next time.